Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. When you pay that first month rent and security deposit, first month rent, fine, you're paying your rent. The security deposit, $1,400 just gets put into an escrow account that by law you can't use, the landlord can't touch. It's just dead money sitting there. And yet most Americans don't have $500 for an emergency expense. When you rent anything else, Andrew, you don't put up the cash. You don't give her it's $10,000 in case you get into an accident. Why can't that same model apply to housing, right? Instead of paying $1,000 of a cash deposit, why can't you just opt, if you want, to say, I'd rather sign up for $5 a month and have insurance that covers the landlord so I don't have to put that money up and I'm not sitting there. If you're, if you're in government and you hear this, you're like, well, this is a win because like, you know, just more, more money in people's pockets, more money presumably gets spent, more money in emergency savings, to your earlier point. Most policies have a win-lose type model, right? In fact, that's, by the way, the first concern most political folks who talk to us Think about it. Well, it must be a win-lose, right? Landlord must who's be losing, losing here. Residence. Who's going to be who's pissed losing off? Here, yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> and whose union is going to call me and whose lobby is going to call me and who's going to get mad at me for, for something like this, right? But like you and I know this from the private sector, you have to create win-win solutions in order for a business to work. Welcome back to Yang Speaks. This is your co-host, Zach Grauman. On today's episode, Encore Jane joined the podcast to speak with Andrew. Guys, Encore is a fascinating human being. Inc. Magazine once called him the best connected 21-year-old in the world. <laughs> and that was a while ago. He's, he's, in his, uh, he's a little older than that now. He was VP of product at Tinder. So if you ever got a Tinder date off of that app, you can thank him directly. But also what he's working on now is running a venture fund that's investing in companies that are helping young people basically solve problems that our government should be solving. So he is working on a startup that is eliminating the security deposit when you rent an apartment. He's working on a credit card that you can build up points when you pay rent. There's incredible stuff this guy's working on. You've got two entrepreneurs, him and Andrew, have this perspective um, and conversation that one, we need to have, but two, is, is fascinating to listen to. So you're going to enjoy it. The other thing I wanna let you guys know, in celebration of our 100th episode, woohoo, we are going to do an Ask Yang Speaks episode, basically a mailbag episode. So if you go on Twitter and use the hashtag Ask Yang Speaks, let us know your questions. We will try to answer as many of them as we can. Keep them fun, keep them substantive. We will do some serious ones. We'll try to do rapid fire, but I want it to be a real conversation as well. So TBD on that, that'll be our 100th episode celebration. But for now, Encore Jane, two titans of entrepreneurship, um, some really fascinating people um, between him and Andrew. You have this great conversation. So enjoy it on Yang Speaks right now. It is my pleasure to welcome to Yang Speaks, the founder and CEO of Kairos, one of, to me, the most cutting edge investors and entrepreneurs uh, in, in really the industry today. Encore Jane, welcome Encore. Hey, it's good to be here, Andrew. It's got, you know, it's funny being here on this podcast with you after like, I think the last time we talked when I was not even out of college yet. It's been a hell of a run for you since then. Yeah, the last time we spoke was about 10 years ago, 
you were the uh, one of the heads of something called the Cairo Society, I want to say, that um, was this massive network for budding entrepreneurs at the college level. And I have to say, because of you, uh, like the, the folks in Cairo wound up with all sorts of like incredible exposure and experiences. I remember being really impressed. I was like, holy cow, how the heck they make this happen in college? <laughs> <laughs> it was a, it was a really unique time. I mean, it was right. We started that back in 2008. And if you remember, this is the original uh, kind of financial crisis, right? 2008, all the banks collapsed. And what's wild is back then, if you said you were an entrepreneur, it just meant that you were unemployable, right? If you didn't get a job at a bank or consulting firm, I mean, that's when you became an entrepreneur. And then all of a sudden, all the banks uh, and consulting companies kind of went went under in 2008. And the opportunity cost for really, really smart talent to take on some of the big challenges facing the world uh, went away. And so now, great talent coming out of these universities could say, well, what if I spent the next two years trying to build a business that solves healthcare, that takes on clean energy, that takes on uh, issues in housing or any of these areas of focus? Um, and I think a lot of our entrepreneurs got involved with Venture for America back in the day. Oh, yeah. We had, we had like this kind of synergistic uh, relationship um, where a lot of the folks who were applying to Venture for America at the time would have Kairos on their um, resumes, uh, you know, or essays or what have you. And we, you'll be happy to know, we always took that as uh, a big plus because we're like, ooh, this person's definitely aligned because they've been hustling <laughs> in this direction. Uh, so, you, so, yeah, you should know there was always like this kind of shared DNA, um, I thought. Um, and it's incredible to see you as well, the, this number of years later and everything you've done. I guess from your perspective, too, you'd be like, holy cow, that Andrew Yang guy ended up like <laughs> you know, <laughs> running for president and doing all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's just great. It was so inspiring for me to see someone that was so passionate about entrepreneurship and the idea of creating value in the world run for office. I mean, that's just, you know, most of us aren't brave enough to take on that kind of challenge and uh, put ourselves out there in that way. But it's. God, the world needs something like that. I'm telling you, it's oh, creative thanks, thinking, innovative thinking. Well, look at this. Encore's uh, got to throw his hat in the ring and run for <laughs> office. Right. Um, so, Encore, one of the, the reasons why I think that you had such an elevated perspective is you know, your father is a very, very successful entrepreneur. So I think you hit the ground running. That's something I wanted to, to talk to you a little bit about. Did you ever feel like a sense of almost like greater responsibility, given that you're like, OK, like my dad had done all of this. Like, I guess I'd better like, you know, uh, do something significant. Honestly, so not that way, but it was a interesting. I mean, I, were your parents the first generation here, Andrew? Was it your grandparents? Yeah, they, my, my parents, they moved here as students. And then uh, from, from Taiwan, they met as students at UC Berkeley. Got it. So like, I think that's the part that inspires me the most about you know, my parents' story. Right? My, my dad grew up in a poor village in India, right? And the idea of him getting a college degree, much less coming to the United States, much less helping to launch some of the companies he did, it was much less today, like working on rocket ships to the moon was like literally crazy, right? Uh, and so seeing how for him coming to this country gave him all those opportunities for a kind of a young boy from India coming out of college, getting an entry level job in the United States and then working his way up into creating real things. Like that is something so special. And that's actually, I think what drove me more than saying, God, I have shoes to fill. It's that if if he could pull that off coming from where he came from, what's the kind of impact someone like you or I can make on the world, given the footing that we had growing up being born in this country um, with this kind of opportunity. And to his credit, you know, and to my mom and dad's credit throughout my childhood, there was no, uh, in fact, I think they, the Indian <laughs> stick was still the leading, leading driver of, uh, there was no freebies, no giveaways. If it was like, you know, if you wanted to get something, and you asked your my parents for you know allowance, they would you know they'd say sure I'll give you the money to buy this, but you can also pay for your tuition then too. That's a pretty good comeback while you're in well, school. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it forces you as a young kid to then find creative ways to get what you want, right? And that is the spirit of entrepreneurship, right? And so all of a sudden, if you want to buy something, you've got to find a way to get it 
as part of some exchange. And that's literally what I, how I started my first company back when I was 12, was wanting to buy things and not being able to use money. So having to figure out how to do some deal with these companies as a kid. Um, nice bartering, young encore. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> No, but but I can relate to this. And um, when I was running for president, and I sometimes reference the fact that it's like, you know, my father grew up on a peanut farm with no floor. I remember when I saw that farm, too, though, it had, it had like had built a floor by the time I visited in my teens. But I was still like, holy cow, man. Like, like Dad, you grew up here. <laughs> I can't even like fathom that type of culture shock, right? I mean, I sometimes felt it going from Seattle to New York, right? I can't imagine going from you know, a farm in Taiwan or my dad's village in India to this world, right? Yeah. So seeing my dad transition, uh, that though I didn't see it. I mean, I kind of figured it out after the fact, but I agree with you. It kind of lights a fire under you where you're like, okay, I'd better. <laughs> you know, totally. Like, I mean, also to your, like both of our parents, like they, they fought through this to create opportunity and a platform for us. And I, I think, you know, one of the things my parents have always talked about has been, you can't really, when you come from that back and you realize you can't really measure success by how much money you've made, but you start to measure it by how many lives you impact, right? Yes. And often, Amen, the nice, well, look, the nice thing about this, and this is like the, the core of Venture for America, core of what the original Kairos was and what it is today, is that when you really think about it from that perspective, it's actually the key to also making money. Right. It's that if you can solve a big enough problem that impacts a lot of lives, it also then leads to financial success. Right. And I think that middle point has sometimes gotten lost in Silicon Valley where people just chase the next crypto this or VR that or platform this without actually thinking about what problem they're solving or the impact it can have on someone's life that they're willing to pay for it. Right. I certainly love the idea of impact as a measurement. And, uh, you know, when I, I did decide to run for president, it was about like, okay, how can I solve this problem at a large enough scale where, uh, you know, we can actually start to um, move society forward and make progress. Um, and I love what you're saying. It's like, look, you know, if you try and have a big enough impact, then the money will come. Um, that's certainly something that you hoped is true. One of the big frustrations I have, and this is something that Kairos is working on, is that there's a lot of investment capital available for people who are trying to solve certain types of problems, and then there are other types of problems where it's like, yeah, <laughs> like I, I don't, like I, I don't really need to to invest in that. And so, and you kind of know, unfortunately, the latter category uh, are areas that tend to be most important and impactful. To your point, um, you know, like uh, like Chamath uh, talks about a little bit of this with with his um, social capital, you know, fund um, where. Uh, like the easy money is being made in this this very active marketplace, but then the longer term problems around, let's call it climate change or education or elder care yep. or like whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. They're huge problems. Huge problems. They're getting worse. And then in theory, you're like, well, the public sector should address that. And then like, we're kind of waiting for the public sector to address their advice of that. It's funny you say it. So Kairos as a word, when I... 12 years ago was creating the original talent incubator for entrepreneurs. It means the right moment in Greek, right? And so 2008, when the world's financial systems collapsed, to me, it was the right moment for young people to get out and try entrepreneurship as a path to creating their career and making an impact, right? In 2017, after I was prior, previously running product for Tinder, after we sold that company, uh, so wait, wait, wait. Let, let's rewind it for a second because Tinder is super famous. You're like running product to Tinder. So did that involve going on a lot of dates yourself? Like, I was is that such, a thing? You know what? I was uh, prior to working at Tinder. Yes. But after that, I was, I was in a very happy relationship during that time. So, I, but maybe very popular amongst my friends who wanted special features at Tinder that didn't even exist, but it made a lot of phone calls coming in. <laughs> I think what's so interesting is in 2017, right as you were thinking about this kind of election and-, and Oh yeah, post-Trump, man, that's what I had activated. I was like, all right, well, let's, let, let's try to That's it, try it was a big. moment. It was a moment in time. And so that was actually, by the way, and most people don't know this, that's when we bought the name Kairos back for a new company I started, because um, it felt like the right moment in time again. And I'd say, what's funny is you and I kind of took slightly different approaches to this, but I said, guys, Technology companies in so many ways have more power today to make change than the government, right? And unfortunately, a lot of that isn't being used for the good and the solutions that you were referencing 
uh, to some of these problems, whether it's, again, elder care or housing or health care, child care, right? But there is an opportunity for that to be the case. And so I do think, I mean, that's what we're spending all of our efforts on is trying to move capital away, move talent away from silly ideas, frankly, that no one really needs and raise billions of dollars into the problems that matter today. And by the way, to every venture capitalist that I meet who says that they love to invest in, you know, smart devices and blockchain and this, I say like student loans is $1.3 trillion outstanding, right? Housing is hundreds of billions, $500 billion a year spent on rent. How much money is spent on Alexa powered toasters on a daily basis? I have no idea. But from your market size MBA quadrant, I'm betting that the big problems in the world are actually better investment opportunities. And if the kind of work you're doing and the work we're trying to do and others starts to focus on that, then hopefully for like your kids and maybe one day my kids, that is the example people look at when they think of entrepreneurship. I love it. And when, when I was running for president, I'd go around the country and there are three things that were making everyone miserable. Housing, education, and healthcare costs. <laughs> like if you look around, like the average American has seen their income more or less stagnate. And then those three things, housing, education, and healthcare, just keep going, going up in price. And they're just like, oh, what am I doing? And it's like making everyone um, crazy, in my opinion. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So you've been working on some of these problems and I, I can't wait uh, to dig into some of the ways that you're trying to improve uh, one of these big, massive parts of the economy. Uh, where do you want, like, wh which one you want to tackle first? <laughs> I mean, look, I, I always, it's funny, like, the way we approach this, we said, what is the single largest expense that most Americans deal with every single month? And it's housing, right? And when you think about rent, which is even a kind of subset of housing, what's crazy is that rent prices keep going up and yet the quality of housing is going down. <laughs> what other market in the world do people pay more and more and more and get less and less and less, right? You went from like a home to a floor, to an apartment, to like a New York shoebox, you know, for even more money. And that to me spells problem, which spells opportunity, right? And so when we started looking at the housing market, Obviously, everyone talks about the monthly rent cost, right? But what we often forget are the things that we take most for granted, which when it came to housing was the upfront cost it takes to just move into an apartment. Back in uh, 2000, and I was going to date myself, but whatever. It's like 2002. Um, so this was like the, the um, bubble bursting before the, the financial crisis you're talking about. Um, so I moved into a New York City apartment. I was young. I was in my 20s. And... Because it was a very, very difficult economic climate, they were offering two free months on a one-year lease. Uh, and I, I moved in with a friend of mine. And so we had to pay one month up front um, and a deposit, I believe. Um, but then because we paid for the first month and we were getting two months free, we didn't have to pay rent for three months. 
That's amazing. And, and it was like the greatest three months of our lives. <laughs> like imagine being a 20 something year old and not paying rent for a few months and still living in an apartment, like not with your parents or whatever. So, so we were just like so happy, me and my roommate, uh, a guy named Andy George uh, that I grew up with. So the two of us were living in this apartment. And then when they started charging us rent, um, in month four, we were so sad. We were like, we don't live here for free <laughs> because like you've been in there for three months without paying rent. That's probably the last time that people had that experience up until this last year. Right. And I'll say like one of the stories that I've heard, one of the few, like, I guess, silver linings of some of the current tough situation the world has gone through is people had a chance to go back and you know, they didn't have to be in the main city next to their job for the last 12 months. And so a lot of people had a chance to move back in with their family or move in with friends and save a lot of money on rent that they were at, were at which I think actually has saved millions of Americans throughout this economic crisis, which is the amount of money they were saving on rent is what gave them that cushion. Um, unfortunately, obviously not everyone could do that, but for those who could, it was a big deal. So you talked about first month rent security deposit, right? The average rent in New York City. $2,000. Across the country, take smaller places around the country, is almost $1,400, okay? When you pay that first month rent and security deposit, first month rent, fine, you're paying your rent. The security deposit, $1,400 just gets put into an escrow account that by law, you can't use, the landlord can't touch. It's just dead money sitting there. And yet most Americans don't have $500 for an emergency expense, right? So you've got this weird thing where every landlord is saying, give me thousands of dollars to put aside, you rich man. And you're saying, I don't even have $500 for an emergency expense. What $1,500 are you talking about? Um, and so we looked at that and said, wait a second, that feels a little weird. And then you look a little deeper and you realize that there's $45 billion of cash sitting in residential rental security deposits, wow. generating no interest wow. that nobody can touch. And you're like, wait a second, something here is wrong, right? If we could just give that money back, I mean, think about the stimulus package that everyone's been talking about. We could give back $1,400 to every rental household in this country without any of Congress's approval just by unlocking security deposits, right? So obviously, when you first ask the question, well, why not just get rid of security deposits? Well, so so the purpose, yeah, the purpose of the security deposit theoretically is that if uh, I trash your place, then I can uh, use a security deposit to pay for damages, or if I right. uh, don't pay rent, I can apply the the deposit. Exactly right. So there is a purpose, right? It protects landlords from that kind of bad behavior abuse. The truth, though, is that if you look at the data, it's a very small percentage of people in the country who are bad renters like that. We're talking about low single digits, All right? right. So sense. here you have a market where $45 billion is trapped away, and most of it just sits from one deposit count to another as you move apartments, never to be used. Now, when you rent anything else, Andrew, you don't put up the cash, right? If you were to rent a car from like Hertz, you don't give Hertz $10,000 in case you get into an accident. You give them your, say, 20 bucks a day for the car and maybe $5 a day for the insurance, Right. Why can't that same model apply to housing, right? Instead of paying $1,000 of a cash deposit, why can't you just opt if you want to say, I'd rather sign up for $5 a month and have insurance that covers the landlord so I don't have to put that money up and I'm not sitting there. Um, so that was the simple idea that now three years later, we've get, I mean, during COVID using this program, we were able to give back a quarter billion dollars to renters across the United States who got the deposits back and replaced it with this low cost insurance. Landlords stayed protected and a quarter billion dollars went back into the pockets of Americans without changing the taxes or without creating a new stimulus plan just with that. Okay, okay, so let's run through a scenario. Okay, okay, hang on. Um, so I, I buy that most renters are well behaved um, because you know I've been a renter and I always was like living in fear somehow of like, frankly, screwing up in some way. It's like, you know, you just like pay a rent and, you know, like try and be a good tenant. Um, so 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 let's say that 95 percent of renters are in this category. Um, I show up to an apartment 
And then um, let's say that we're using $2,000 for ease. Um, like, uh, let, let's go back to my 20-something-year-old my, uh, case where it's like me and my friend or both 20-something-year-olds um, and each of us like is going to pay $1,500 a month in rent for a $3,000 um, apartment. So ordinarily, we'd put up $3,000 in a security deposit. But in the new world, how much are we spending <laughs> on, on this low-cost insurance policy? And then if we do end up trashing the place, what does the landlord get? You have a choice when you move into the apartment. You can either pay the $2,000 of cash, if you like, which most people prefer not to, or you can pay, in that case, it'd be about $10 a month for this insurance. In this new world, I'm spending 10 bucks a month, which is $120 a year. And then that's like in perpetuity, which is still a deal. Like most anyone would take this. You put that, you can take that money out and put it in the market and generate more than that $10 a month on the average historical stock market gains of 7%. So, so right? for the tenant, this is a no brainer. I'm into it. And then for the landlord, like what, what landlord, do they get if you end up, you know, being a jerk? The, the <laughs> same full coverage of the security deposit, right? So if there ends up being kind of damage or non-payment of rent, things that would be covered by a security deposit, the landlord, who, by the way, also no longer has to manage all this cash, handle a separate escrow account for each resident, track the income from each resident and move it into a, you know, when they cash out, they now just, they say there was damages or non-payment of rent. They file the claim within 24 hours, the money's in their bank account and the claim is, is over. Right. And, that's, and, and so, that's something that this company that you started now handles or you invested in. That's right. Uh, is that's right. that right? So we, yeah, co- co-founded the company. Yeah. And so that's up and running. It's called Rhino. But like across the country now, renters have that choice. If I'm a renter, I want this immediately because it's like this is vastly superior to a security deposit. So if I show up to an apartment and then they're like, security deposit, please. And then I'm like, I would prefer to use Rhino. And then the landlord is like, what the hell is that? Like, what, what does that step look like? It's a process, right? So in most major high, we today as one company, if now many that have come into the space, but we work with over a million apartments across the United States to provide this option to renters, right? Now, So, so do you sell to the, the landlords and the apartment uh, yeah. holders or the renters? So we partner with the apartments to then who then accept the policy in place of a cash deposit. And then the resident can choose to sign up and pay the monthly $5, $10 fee or pay the cash deposit. What's exciting is that as this has had a lot of impact across the country, and again, it's mostly been with kind of the more high rise buildings that you'll see in major cities. All of a sudden, a lot of people from your world, right? They like the mayors and governors, both on the Republicans and Democrat side, started reaching out to ask more about this, right? And the idea was, wait a second, could we accelerate something like this to help make sure that everyone has access to these options and that money is going back into the economy um, for my constituents? Oh, yeah. If you're if you're in government and you hear this, you're like, well, this is a win because like, you know, just more, more money in people's pockets, more money presumably gets spent, more money in emergency savings to your earlier point. Most policies have a win-lose type model, right? In fact, that's, by the way, the first concern most political folks who talk to us think about is, well, it must be a win-lose, right? Landlord must who's be losing, losing here. Residents. Who's going to be who's losing off? here, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and whose union is going to call me and whose lobby is going to call me and who's going to get mad at me for, for something like this, right? But like you and I know this from the private sector, you have to create win-win solutions in order for a business to work. So the name of this uh, category is security deposit replacement. Is that right? Security. Yeah. Security, I mean, we call it security deposit insurance, but it's a form of an alternative um, to traditional cash deposits. Look, I just can't wait for the memes on Reddit three years from now when people are like, remember back in the day when you had to hand over your life savings just to move into an apartment and it'll just be, uh, you know, a thing of the past. Our kids will have no idea what that meant to have to put up thousands of dollars just to move into an apartment. I love this so much. I mean, like you said, uh, you know, you, you could get billions of dollars back into people's hands and, and it's a win-win. This is genius. Rhino is genius. <laughs> I love Rhino. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. 
Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record, your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. You're working on something else in the same space, right? That there's a way to, to tie um, someone's credit card points also into rental savings. Is that correct? So... You're getting ahead of yourself, Andrew, but I'll tell you all about this in June. Um, we are working on a cr potentially crazy idea that will give every renter in America a path to home ownership just by paying rent um, at any apartment building in the country. We are we're going to announce that in June, and I can't wait to tell you all about it first. But oh well, very exciting. So, what other? opportunities or inefficiencies have you identified, if any, like that, that are going to make people go, wow. I mean, so housing is the number one area of focus, right? It's, can we get rid of these costs to moving in? Can we then give every young person in this country a path to homeownership? And then obviously the next big expense people deal with is healthcare. Healthcare is interesting because the old model of healthcare has always been about bringing people into hospitals, bringing people as they get older into nursing homes, right? And the challenge with that is, as we saw, unfortunately, during this last year is our systems are not set up to do that. It is a really crappy experience for the patients. And it's really unfortunate for like our parents and grandparents as they age, that they just get thrown into these nursing homes, which if you're not lucky enough to afford one of the nicest ones, most of these nursing homes have extraordinarily high loneliness rates, depression rates, death rates, abuse rates. I mean, it's really just, it's messed up, right? And as you know, over 50% of the, or almost 50% of the um, death during COVID happened at nursing homes because of the lack of safety protocols, the spread, et cetera. Right? So three years ago, as we were launching Rhino, we thought, is there a new model of healthcare we can build? that moves care out of hospitals, out of nursing homes, into people's homes, right? Home care. It's a market that has been around for a long time, um, but it's not affordable. It's not technologically up to date. Yeah, most of this right now would consist of a home health care aid that comes and um, you know, presumably spends time with you, which is um, expensive, um, even though the people in that industry are systematically underpaid and exploited, just throwing that out there. But, no, but despite that, it's, it's, it, it's still very expensive. There is a lot of care that requires a home health aid type support. There's care that needs more specialized support. And then there's care that can be provided digitally, right? Um, and so we said, how can we kind of rethink that system, starting with our parents and grandparents who need this help most, right? And so the first thing is, to your point about home health aids, Today, part of the reason they're not able to be paid well is because it's so hard for these local businesses to generate enough hours in the day that they can optimize. So they're only going in for three hours to a client and then not earning any income and they're not getting paid to do their job, right? So technology exists. Uber, DoorDash, these businesses have built routing technology to allow you to find better ways to optimize kind of routes and care, right? And so if we can start to give a worker a way to keep eight hours a day of continuous care, 
they can now receive real wages that actually allow them to sustain their own life, uh, livelihoods, right? That was number one. Number two is that the, you can't rely and expect any one person to know everything about the health of their client. Like, I don't want to trust my, my parents or my grandparents' care to some home health aide who's trying to figure it out all of themselves when there's so many factors there. And so we empower each person with a with the, essentially a, a smart app that guides them through what to do and identifies risk factors that the doctors can get involved when they need without having to ho- wait until something ends up in the hospital, right? So we launched this uh, actually starting in London because the NHS, the government healthcare system, uh, contracted us to work with them on this. It's called CERA, C-E-R-A. And what's exciting is we have been able to both create tens of thousands of jobs through this program and provide more affordable, higher quality care across the United Kingdom. So during COVID, we're doing an average of 15,000 home visits a day. Um, We helped the government create over 20,000 jobs um, just during the first few months as people were getting laid off by retraining them. What I'm hearing from this is just home health care uh, aids like on demand uh, like that that can be um, routed more efficiently um, than, than is currently possible. That's what I'm hearing. Is that so, more or less I correct? Just, no, I just want to, I, I guess what I clarify is it's not on demand, right? I mean, you can do that if you had an emergency need, but most care is recurring, right? So it is coming in three times a week or every day for daycare or coming in at night for overnight care. Um, or on a regular basis for more specialized treatment like dialysis treatment, et cetera, right? So it is scheduled out. It just requires the right simple technology to manage all of that, right? And then also be able to provide better care on the point because you want people to have the support of an entire healthcare system. They're doctors, specialists, et cetera, that know when to get called in, not just waiting until someone has a serious issue and goes up to the hospital. And so we can predict, for example, early stage dementia now with over 90% accuracy because we have people going into their homes and tracking, wait, something is different than it was the last four weeks in the way that they're taking their medicine or their mood. Wow. And you That's can call on the doctor in advance. But, but today, this system is somebody shows up at the house, does their two hours, leaves, fills out a form five days later, and we have no records in real time to be able to identify these uh, risk factors. If you're listening to this around around the country, aren't you pissed off? You're like, you kidding? This guy has this great idea for a service and he had to roll it out in the UK. The way the current healthcare system in the United States is, it makes it very difficult to build this, this type of product. It's frustrating for me too. I had to go through this with my grandpa, unfortunately, before he passed. Like, It's so difficult with like getting home help. And we were lucky we could afford to bring someone into the home here in the US, which is insanely expensive. Um, and even then, like, you don't know how to find someone you can trust because it's just the one person that's taking care of them. So if you don't trust them to find every issue, you know, you're screwed. Yeah, that, that's, that's very profound. It's true. Um, you know, like you would trust yourself maybe if you spent all the time, um, but then you wouldn't necessarily entrust the person that you're bringing in who might not um, be you know, as consistent or diligent, or they, they might not be spending the right amount of time or have the right expertise. Yeah. I mean, Andrew, I'm curious from your perspective, you've, come, you've now seen my, our other side of the world on the, the entrepreneurial side and the political world. I mean, how do you get, how do we get government and entrepreneurs working together more effectively um, to solve these issues? Well, I, you know, I love what you're trying to do, Ankur, because I, I think a lot of it is that entrepreneurs are often attracted to areas where they, they feel like they're going to be able to operate um, uh, more freely uh, and efficiently. And then if you hit a highly, highly regulated zone, then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait. And then some entrepreneurs like you are like willing to, you know, like swim through the muck and figure out, okay, like what can I do in one of these? High- and sometimes there's a great opportunity in the highly regulated zone in part because the regulations have provided kind of like a mode of discouragement. <laughs> like I, I, I worked in healthcare software in the mid 2000s and I used to start joking that healthcare is where good ideas go to die um, because, <laughs> because like a, a lot of the practices aren't super um, 
uh, rational or efficiency minded and the measurements are spotty at best. And so you wind up having people adopt solutions based upon other criteria. Um, so so there, there's, there's a massive opportunity here, man. I mean, what you're doing is awesome. I think uh, on the political side, uh, I do think that um, we have to figure out which regulations uh, are holding us back at this point because there are a lot of rules that made sense when you drew them up um, and they, they had a, a fine purpose. But then in terms of the impact, like it's a double-edged sword and then we didn't undo that rule. And then we then made another whole uh, matrix of rules on top of that one that I spread on top of it. Then everyone's looking around. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, that's right. pretty much what's going on. <laughs> but I guess, is there a way that you can like change the culture of that internally? I mean, because some of it's the rules, but a lot of it comes down to the culture of the people that work for like, you know, for the for the government agencies, right? Where there isn't necessarily, there's a distrust of the private sector, number one, which is probably fairly warranted given some of the players in the market today. Um, and then there's also this culture of fear of trying something new because no one wants to get fired. So how do you create a culture where the people who do implement these policies and these rules like want to find ways to work with innovators and be more innovative as a government? Well, so, so government bureaucracies have a number of features uh, that make sense in their context, but do not necessarily make sense in terms of pushing the envelope and some of the issues you're talking about. So uh, they're, they're, highly, uh, they're highly regulated themselves. Uh, they're, you know, like each worker t- tends to have like a whole set of rules that, that are um, uh, constraining what they can and can't do. Um, they're built for very, very long-term continuity um, and so there are a lot of folks uh, who um, who would be better suited, frankly, to doing like a certain uh, tour of duty within government. I talked to a guy yesterday who'd like worked in government for, for, for eight, eight years and he was a great guy and, and accomplished a lot. Um, but he pretty much said, like, I did my tour of duty. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and I think that that's fair. And but and then but then there are people that, you know, the but the organization generally is built for like multi-decades long continuity and so you have people that um uh, operate in that time frame and then if you so show up and we're like hey let's like do get all this stuff done in 10 months they're like 10 months like i've been here for 10 years and i'm gonna be here for 10 years more and so you know like right. don't necessarily slow down yeah yeah you don't need to to, to be that gung-ho and one organization that does a great job of this that you know i think um we can get lessons from is an organization called code for america that enlists various people who are engineers and coding talent and says, look, like solve this government uh, based issue. And, uh, you know, and then you can return, uh, you know, to the industry. Um, uh, there's also like the U S digital service that, that um, does What's things that? at the federal level. Uh, oh, you'd love it. So uh, you remember healthcare.gov um, yes. when, uh, yeah, we all remember. Healthcare.gov. So, 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 <laughs> so, so when, when the launch had problems, uh, a group of techies led by a guy named Mikey Dickerson from Google came in and uh, patched and fixed the website in real time. It was like a very big deal. Uh, and then they stuck around to try and fix other things, uh, um, web related and tech related. And so they had a workforce of like the low hundreds, um, in, uh, in DC, uh, that they just went around consulting with, uh, various agencies being like, hey, like, can we like help you with something? Can we fix things? And, and they ended up with this like massive um, backlog of projects because everyone was like, we would love your help with, 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 with this thing. So, and, and, they, and, and it also had a tour of duty aspect because a lot of them were techies who would join the US digital service and then do a tour of duty for like, you know, um, three or four years and then, uh, and then cycle out. Um, so there, there, there are things that uh, I'm optimistic about. I'm going to share an idea with you, Ankur, that I'm going to give it to you and then maybe you can do it. And if, actually, if there's one human who might be able to do it, it, it might be you. Um, and you'll, you'll, you'll see what I mean in just a minute. So, so, so far, we've talked about what you're working on uh, in two of the big three, housing uh, and healthcare, and they're both awesome. And so here's something in education that I've, I've long reflected on. So you know that I spent a number of years um, running what became the country's largest GMAT prep service that helped get, you know, thousands and thousands of people into uh, various business schools. Um, and, uh, and I was looking at that value proposition. And it was like, wow, like, a lot of, like, why are these people all heading to business school, which is like a very significant opportunity cost and career sacrifice. Yeah. You know, it's like two years. The tuition is, uh, you know, maybe insanely high. Like a hundred, ten, hundred twenty thousand, two hundred thousand dollars. Like it's gone insane. up a little bit. So yeah, let's call it 200,000. Um, 
and, and so I made a list of things that motivate people to go uh, to get these uh, to get their MBAs. Um, and uh, one was the credential for sure. Uh, it was the professional network, the personal network, um, to to some extent. Um, like the book learning, but I'm going to suggest that that stuff's like, you know, not that <laughs> central, <Yes>. the consideration. <laughs> um, to some extent, for many people, it was like a career reset or a career switch. It's like you've been working continuously for a period. Yeah, I call Maybe it the another. quarter life crisis. It's when people went into banking or something and burnt out and want to have a quarter life crisis and need a two-year yeah. spring, two spring break for $200,000. So, the, so there, <laughs> there is a pivot, right? There's a career pivot involved where it's like, okay, yes. I'm in this track and then I'm going to um, get my MBA and there's going to be this big career pivot. So then I, I thought to myself and I said, okay, could you provide the credentialing, the professional network, the personal network, the career pivot, uh, like some of the book learning in a shorter time frame than two years uh, and, and, uh, and so I was imagining something that I, you know, like I'd, I'd call it, it would be like the McKinsey summer retreat. That's like three months. Everyone comes together for this period. Instead of two years, it's three months. But then you, you have an environment where people actually develop real relationships and friendships. And the thing is about the McKinsey aspect is that I chose McKinsey because I was like, what's like a very big brand name that could actually have the heft that would, would actually be competitive with like the, you know, HBSs of the world or, or whatever the programs are. Um, and so then I thought it's like, could you deliver like something in like a three month period at a fraction of the cost that had a lot of the social elements, the credentialing elements, the networking elements, and even like the employer appeal elements, if you like, and then I thought like, wow, like what an opportunity that is. Cause there are all these young people that in my mind, like are looking for certain things and the MBA is like a very luxe version of it and very expensive version of and a very enormous opportunity cost. It's like, could you compress it and deliver a lot of the benefits? I love it. Listen, I love it. I love it. It's uh, it's like a much smarter version of an executive MBA. I, it makes me, reminds me of an idea that if you decide to ever get out of the politics thing and come back to the to business world, maybe you could start. Cause this is something I've been wanting to do. And frankly, we don't have the capacity to do, right? And it was inspired by a lot of the stuff that you've been talking about around AI, automation, how do we reskill the workforce, provide them with stability, right? And so there is a, some period in this transition between automation coming in and people fully being out of jobs, right? There'll be a transition point where it happens gradually for some sectors um, first. The problem is today, if you lose your job, that is also the point at which you need the most amount of financial help. You've just lost your job. And the point where lenders want to do the least to help you. It's this really bad dynamic, right? And so, and the problem is as these jobs go away, it becomes harder and harder to ever get back on your feet. And there's no real clarity on what to do to get the new skills or what path to take or what courses, whether it's a summer program like this, or if you're even more vocationally taking a different type of program to get back in the workforce. And so I had this thought of what if we created like an unemployment lending retraining program, right? So you lose your job. You actually, depending on your thing, qualify for an emergency set of funds, right? And it is priced at a high interest rate because you are high risk at that point. However, it gives each person who takes out a loan a clear path towards reemployment that they can use. They commit part of those funds towards training, and maybe those are provided for free, every step of the way that they progress, their rates drop. So it incentivizes the de-risking of the loan while providing people, frankly, the clear path to reemployment. So you lose your job during X. We say, you know what? Here are the five paths that actually could be most feasible, least feasible, et cetera, based on your current skill set. And here are some emergency funds to get back on your feet. And that is an incentive for you to go kind of requalify and take those courses um, to get rehired. There's something here, it's rough, but if anybody could pull it off, it's you. <laughs> I love anything that helps smooth out these transitions because as you know, like I don't think that we're doing enough as a society to help people manage these transitions. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and like you said, the path's actually very unclear for a lot of people as to like what that next opportunity would look like. Uh, you know, a lot of it hinges too upon um, regions where, uh, you know, the economy is shifting in a way that sometimes um, the next opportunity for you 
like might be a few states away, but right now, like, you know, you, you don't uh, recognize that that's the case. <laughs> um, yeah, the, in, in theory, the public sector would be doing more in this direction. Um, and it's something I'm very passionate about. So I can see why you raised it, man. Um, something there. Yeah, no, and I, I like the way your mind works, too, because you're, you're, you're trying to uh, smooth over some of the financial ups and downs and you're trying to bring... Uh, you know, like, um, like try, try and front load the value. It's like you see the value that's going to happen when someone does get that new job. And then you're like, hey, let's try and bring it forward to like where they need it. Uh, it's a little it's a little bit like what you're doing with Rhino, a little bit. But like, I, I love the way your mind works. Um, Encore, um, if someone wants to find out about your big announcement in June or keep up with you or find out what's going on with Kairos, like what's the best way they can do so? Uh, probably the easiest is just following me on Instagram. That's where I try to share some of these things. It's at Encore Jane on Instagram. Um, you can also go to the Kairos website, kairoshq.com. Um, but I'm really excited. Andrew, I, I, you'll be the, one of the first people I call when we're getting ready to, to roll this out. But this has been, I mean, we talk about my last kind of rant here will be about the inequality challenge for our generation. I think we have only seen the surface of what, inequality can do to our country in a terrible way um, if we start to feel divided. And when you think about wealth creation, for most Americans, the ability to own home equity is the greatest predictor of kind of generational wealth uh, over time. That's true. And as, and as my generation, as millennials and Gen Z are living more and more paycheck to paycheck, even if you're living well, right? you can work at Goldman and live paycheck to paycheck these days. It's crazy. Right. Is as that happens and people are less able to buy home equity, which is again highly levered, but in a, in the safest possible way for investment assets, right? Um, if only the top, top, top percent of people are able to buy those homes over the next 20 years, 30 years, as that population sees their assets compound and the rest of my generation is just still living rent check to rent check, there is going to be riots on the street right? More than we've seen in the last year. And so I'm hopeful that this program, which we have developed, I think this is the first use case I have personally been a part of, which has truly been a partnership between the government and us in the private sector to give every American a path to home ownership just by paying rent at any apartment. Um, I think this could be a really, really transformative, exciting thing. Well, uh, Ankur, I have to applaud your focus on problems that affect uh, lots of people that, that will have a high impact if you if you can uh, contribute to solving for them. Uh, I hope more investors and entrepreneurs follow in your footsteps. Uh, you know, and I think it, it's uh, going to pay off for a lot of people in more ways than one. Uh, you know, and I, I just want to congratulate you on it. Well, thanks for all the work you're doing too, man. Thank you. Such a pleasure. 